to the Sojourn Church podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N Tulsa.org. But he was determined, even if he wasn't quite cut cut out to, to make it as a salesman, he was determined to keep grinding, to do whatever it took to give him and his family a better life, to finally achieve happiness, right? And then one day, as he was trying to to sell one of these scanners, he shared a cab with a a manager at a stock brokerage. This manager was messing with a Rubik's Cube, and Chris just took it from him and solved it instantly. He was so impressed with Chris that he gave him an internship at his firm, and the rest is history. He went on to become a a highly successful investor, a motivational speaker whose movie or whose story was turned into a movie in 2006. Maybe you've seen it. It's called The Pursuit of Happiness. It's an incredible movie. It earned $27 million in opening weekend. Went on to earn over $160 million in theaters alone. It was a huge hit. One of my favorite movies I think it was such a huge hit, partly because all of us can relate to this, right? All of us can relate, maybe not to being homeless or to sleeping on the bathroom floor, although maybe some of us can, but all of us, no doubt, can relate to the pursuit of happiness, right? It's a a natural desire. We can relate to the grind, to the determination to provide for our families, to give our kids a better life than we had, or to finally land that job that we've worked so hard for. And while these things are are good, they're certainly not bad pursuits in their own right. This is often what we equate with happiness, isn't it? If, If I can finally achieve this, if I can give this or get that, then I will finally be happy. But you really don't have to live very long until you see that eventually the bottom of these things fall out. That relationship isn't reciprocal like you thought, or that employer doesn't value you like you imagined or like you'd like them to. What I think we'll see this morning is that the problem really isn't with our pursuit of happiness. I'm really convinced God cares a lot about our happiness as his people. The problem is that we tend and try to find it in the wrong things. We turn good things into ultimate things. We get them out of order. It disorients our entire lives. It throws everything off. We're left scrambling, trying to figure out where things went wrong. Friends, I'm convinced Psalm 32 speaks to this exact kind of thing. It's a psalm of thanksgiving, giving thanks to the Lord for providing a true and a better happiness for his people. It's a teaching psalm. That's what the phrase a masculine of David is speaking to. It says that at the top of the psalm. It's David teaching God's people 
that yes, in fact, true and lasting and better happiness really does exist. The bottom won't fall out here. God does care about the happiness of his people. And David says, this is how you get it. So if you would follow along read and, and, and read with me as we consider together Psalm 32. It goes like this, the masculine of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there's no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time where you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and brittle or will not stay near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is God's word. Even though it's, it's not actually part of the inspiration of our Bibles, the, the title at the top of the psalm, I'm convinced, really sums up its theme well. That blessed are the forgiven, or literally happy are the forgiven. And to be clear, we're not talking about something superficial, right? A, a, a surface level, I'm so happy the weekend is here, so I don't have to go to work for the next couple of days. Right, or I'm so happy the next season of my favorite Netflix show is about to release. Right? David is speaking to deep-rooted joy, to an unshakable happiness that doesn't change, it doesn't change depending on our circumstance, right? which sounds really nice. My joy isn't going anywhere, no matter if that Netflix show is released or not. Right? It's unshakable. And David is clear when he says that the reason for our happiness, church, is this, that God stands ready and eager to forgive any and all of our sins when we simply go to him. It's a source of our happiness. And when we do go to him, we see that this forgiveness is a package deal. God doesn't only wipe our slate clean and send us on our merry way. But in addition to forgiveness, he gives us himself. He gives us fellowship and communion with the triune God. He satisfies our deepest longing. That's the theme of Psalm 32. The first two verses waste no time getting to the point. Again, that happiness is real. It's what that word blessed is getting at. A, a true, a better, a lasting happiness. But... David also makes it clear that this doesn't exist for just anybody. Right? Yeah, it, it is real. It is genuine, but it's only for a certain kind of person. 
right? And according to the psalm, who is this person? David says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. He says it three times. The truly happy person is this. It's the one who's had his biggest need met in the forgiveness of sin. The psalmists, they love wordplay, right? They're full of word pictures, of imagery. And Psalm 32 paints for us a picture of what it is that God's people have been forgiven of. He uses three nouns here to vividly describe what keeps people from happiness. The first is the word transgression. It's the deliberate defiance of God, intentional rebellion against his will. Picture an an arm shaking its fist against its creator, God. It's knowing that what you're doing is not only wrong, but it's offensive and insulting, and you're doing it anyway. That's transgression. The second is the word sin. It's, it's missing the mark. It's falling totally short of the standard and the goal God sets for us. We're shooting at a target and getting nowhere close every time. And then third is the word iniquity or guilt. It means going astray or deviation from the right path. You're purposefully taking the wrong road. I remember I was 18 when I got my first traffic ticket. It was for going the opposite direction down a one-way road on purpose. And I thought I got away with it, right? I, I even parked my truck in the parking lot. I got out. I started walking across the parking lot when a police officer on foot, no less, pulled me over, if you can even do that, on foot. He walked up to me and gave me a ticket on the spot. And I I thought I could get away with it. And I thought I did. I knew it was wrong. I just thought I I, I I could get away with it. And I was wrong. David uses these words here to paint for us a a picture of domination by sin. It's a, a, a situation all of us find ourselves in. It's a picture of disappointment, of crooked and twisted character of sin that cuts us off from God, of sin that kills us spiritually, and of sin that will in time lead to our physical deaths as well. One of the most obvious, one of the most clear storylines from Scripture is that sin leads to death. But another effect of sin, I feel like we don't talk about very often, is one that David brings up right here in this chapter, in verses 3 and 4. He says it's the sheer misery of it. It's how pitiful sin makes us feel. Are you familiar with that feeling this morning? How pitiful sin makes you feel. Look at what David writes about his own experience of sin in verses 3 and 4. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Now, we haven't quite gotten there yet this summer. We've had other weather to be concerned about. But I've got no doubt in my mind that David has in his mind this dry, muggy Oklahoma heat. 
in these verses, the kind of heat, he says, the heat of summer that just dries your strength, right? Like a plant scorched by the summer sun. The kind of heat makes me want to strap a spotlight to my lawnmower so I can mow at night and not get out in it. I want us to notice, though, I think this is really interesting. I want us to notice that it's not actually sin that's causing this kind of groaning. It's not what David says in verse 3. That's causing David's strength to be dried up. It's not sin as much as it is trying to hide your sin from God. It's silence and unconfessed sin. Many people think David wrote Psalm 32 in response to his affair with Bathsheba, just like he did Psalm 51. It's his own testimony of the aftermath of this event in his life. And if you know the story in 2 Samuel, and you, you know that David committed adultery with another man's wife, he had her husband killed all to cover his own sin. It was only after Nathan confronted him in his sin that he finally confesses and repents. And I was, I was reflecting on this this week. This struck me just out of curiosity. Do you have any idea how much time went by after David committed this sin and then he finally confessed it to God? How much time do you think went by? Samuel says it was almost an entire year Almost a whole year had gone by before David had the humility to fess up and to confess to what he had done. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I get this idea. I, I picture in my head that David was almost applauding himself during that year for literally getting away with murder. You know, he, he had this new beautiful wife. He was leading a powerful nation. But he says right here in Psalm 32, that he was miserable. He felt pathetic, right? This was all he could think about. And David was even a Christian at the time. He was already a follower of God. He'd been delivered from the ultimate consequence of sin and death. But because of his hard heart, thinking he could hide something from an all-seeing, all-knowing God, he convinced himself that he could simply sweep it all under the rug. But it turns out the stench wouldn't go away. David traces his misery here, his unhappiness, not so much to his sin as to his unwillingness to confess it to God, to his silence about it, to covering it up and to keeping it to himself. He felt the psychological and the physical effects, he says, as his bones wasted away. Notice again who and where this feeling was coming from, who it was impressing this heavy feeling upon David's soul. It was the Lord, right? It's what he says, verse four, your hand was heavy upon me. God's hand was heavy upon him, causing this pain, this discomfort, and not for a short time at all, but day and night, he says constantly, no letting up. David's vitality, his strength dried as in the heat of summer, like a wilting plant shriveling under the hot, scorching sun. Zero energy and no strength under the pressing of God's hand. 
If you look at the, the right margins of your, your copy of, of Scripture after verse 4, you see the word Selah. It shows up here in this psalm three times, something like 70 times throughout the book of Psalms. And while we might not know everything that it meant, we do know the psalms were often sung similar to what we did together this morning. But I think it, 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 uh, it, it indicates a pause in singing while the, the music plays on, right? So it was likely meant to be an intentional pause for reflection, to contemplate the words, to meditate on the truth that was being taught. And David puts one here as he remembers the pressing hand of the Lord, stifling his happiness due to his unconfessed sin. So then I only think it, it, it makes sense for us to ask ourselves this morning, is God's hand heavy on you? Is God's hand heavy on you? This morning is pressure building up because of your conscience due to unconfessed sin in your life. I remember my first semester of college, I was making poor decisions and living in sin. There were a couple of older guys who took me to lunch one day to share the gospel with me. And before they even got to the gospel, I was already confessing everything, right? I just wanted that weight lifted off of me so I could finally move on. Could it be that the pain you're feeling is the hand of God urging you to humbly go to him and to confess your sin? Maybe you've convinced yourself that it's really not that bad or because nobody else knows about it, then neither does God. Brothers and sisters, there is relentless deceit and unconfessed sin. And it mainly revolves around self-deceit because we're not fooling an all-knowing, all-seeing God, right? And I also want to be clear because Jesus makes it clear that not all sickness at all is due to personal sin. Anyone who teaches otherwise is teaching evil. That's not the case. When the disciples saw a, a blind man in John chapter 9, they asked Jesus, who sinned that this man was born blind? And he responds, nobody. Nobody did. He was simply born blind. In other words, there doesn't have to be a correlation. Right, between a disability or a pain or a sickness and personal sin. And most of the time, that's not the case. But sometimes it is. Isn't that what David is saying in Psalm 32? That's exactly what happened to him. He, he kept silent, refusing to confess, and he experienced the pressing hand of God. Lindsay Armstrong, she comments, she says, his mouth kept silent, so his body spoke. It wasted away. Silence about sin, church, makes us sick. So again, do you need to confess your sin to the Lord this morning? Is his hand heavy on you? Because if it is, hear this. Hear this, church. If it is, if this is what you feel this morning, and he's being kind to you. It's his kindness. It really is. Because listen to this. Listen what this drives David to do. This is the pressing hand of the Lord in action. It's the result. This is what it compels David to do. Look at verse 5. David says, I acknowledge my sin to you. 
I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgression to the Lord. So it's driving him to, to confess. And what happens? What happens? He says, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Immediate forgiveness, right? Nathan calls out in the book of 2 Samuel. He calls out David in 2 Samuel 12. The next verse, David confesses. He says, I've sinned against the Lord in the same breath. We don't even move on to the next verse to find God's response. Immediately, he pronounces, the Lord has put away your sin. Confession, and then immediately, the recoil is forgiveness. It doesn't matter what the sin is, right? David was an adulterer and a murderer. It doesn't matter how long it's been. It was an entire year. Church, our God is like the father in the story of the prodigal son. He interrupts us mid-sentence. says, quickly, get the best robes. Bring the fattened calf. It's time to celebrate. Reconciliation is happening. Friends, God is always more eager to forgive than we are to confess. Which is why it doesn't make any sense, right? When I sin, I'm tempted tempted to just sit in it, my shame to wallow in it. But church, God is eager to forgive. He's ready. We don't have to poke, to, to yank on his arm, to prod. He's ready to bring the fattened calf. We do not compel him to mercy. It's not how it works. He's ready before we are. Ready and eager to reconcile and ultimately to provide a better happiness for his people. All that's required. We don't have to jump through any hoops. All that's required is a true heartfelt confession of our sin to a God who's eager to reconcile, who's eager to forgive us. This is, or at least ought to be, right? One of the most normal rhythms of our Christian lives, confession and forgiveness. God's pressing hand is this, in, in, in the midst of unconfessed sin is the same as his kind and gracious hand in forgiveness because this is what drives us to confess, right? To go to a God who interrupts us mid-sentence to say, you're forgiven. No strings attached. That weight is lifted off your shoulders. Let me take that from you. You'll notice another Selah at the end of verse 5. I think one of the reasons we're oftentimes hesitant to confess our sins to God is we're afraid, right? Because we're afraid and we're afraid because we misunderstand who God is, right? Either we're afraid that God will punish us, we're afraid that he simply won't accept us because we've messed up too many times. I don't know if you can relate to that. But church, nothing is further from the truth, right? It's not true. When you confess your sins to him, if you're in Christ, he's not going to judge you. He's not going to reject you. Instead, he's going to restore to you the happiness you've longed for. Right? The punishment for your sin has already been paid by the death of Christ and accepted at his resurrection. Right? There's no need to be afraid but instead to have confidence in and through the blood of Christ. Not fear, but confidence in the gospel, right? The second half of 
our psalm, verse 6, it begins with a therefore. It's a natural application of what it looks like for us who belong to this kind of God. It's a sort of what now, now that sin has been taken care of, and it has been taken care of. Listen to this. The, the idea of sin is mentioned eight times in the first five verses, and then not at all, not one time after God's forgiveness is announced. It's almost as if David anticipates Paul's words in Romans 8. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Condemnation doesn't exist. If you've been forgiven, church, you've been forgiven. With happiness and confidence, you can move on. And that's exactly what David does in this psalm. With happiness and confidence, he moves on. This is what he says in verse 6. He says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time where you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. David begins here to, to switch from sharing his own experience with sin and forgiveness to teaching his people to apply what life looks like belonging to God. And the very first thing he says, the first thing, is simply to go to him, right? to go to God at a time where he may be found. What he's saying is don't be foolish and wait. Don't think you're going to have time later in life when you get it all out of your system, when you finish college, when you get married and have kids, or when you finally have time to devote to it. Friends, that's a lie, right? It's not true. Don't be foolish. Don't wait, because there will be a time when it is too late. God is eager to forgive and to reconcile now, so we go to him now. We don't wait. He's eager. I want you to notice, too, that upon, God, upon God's forgiveness, there's three things that happen. We get God's fellowship in three specific ways. He doesn't just send us on our merry way, wishing us a good life, but instead he draws us close to him. And the first way we see this is in verse 7, is that he provides us with a true and better protection. He protects us. That's what he says in verse, verse 7. David says, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with a shout of deliverance. Now, instead of hiding in sin, God becomes our hiding place, our righteousness, right? He, he preserves us from trouble, from trouble. He surrounds us with shouts of deliverance. And this is an incredible change. This is what the, the confessed heart, the reconciled soul feels like to have that weight lifted off of our shoulders. Just the other day, I, I saw a, a picture of a friend who has a little girl. They're playing hide and seek, and she was hiding behind a window curtain with her, leg, or her legs hanging out, thinking there's no way I'll ever be found. Church, that's what we do when we try and hide in our sin. It's only a matter of time until we're found out. But... When we confess to God, friend, he covers us with his righteousness. He gives us the gospel as the best hiding place, as the best protection we could ever imagine. 
This is where the last Selah comes into play. So I have to ask, have you felt this change? Do you know what this is like? Do you ever have felt the freedom of having that weight lifted from your shoulders? And then the protection that goes along with it. It's ours if we would confess. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's God's promise to us. Instead of punishing us, he will preserve and protect us. This is a promise to us this morning. The good news goes on in verse 8. God himself begins to speak, and he promises his counsel. Verse 8, he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. As God protects us, he promises to walk with us, to be our companion, to instruct us, to teach and to counsel. He promises to lead us in a lifestyle that's pleasing to him and is good for us. He promises to be personally involved like a watchful father who has his eye on his children. God will be with us. And lastly, as if we couldn't tell already, God surrounds us with his love. He surrounds us with his love in verse 10. He says, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. The Lord has proven himself trustworthy. Amen. He has over and over again. He won't forsake us when we go to him. He won't say, I've had enough. He won't say, not this guy again, not this girl, not this same thing over and over again. Instead, he'll forgive, and then he will protect, and he will guide and counsel, and all together he will love. I'll close with this. You know, it's really no wonder that the sorrows of the wicked, the unhappiness of those who don't know God, it's no wonder that their sorrows are many. It makes sense, doesn't it? Augustine said that Psalm 32 was his favorite of all the Psalms. He had it inscribed on the wall next to his bed so he could fall asleep to it every night. It says, our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Church, if your heart is restless this morning, be encouraged. God is eager to give you rest. He's eager to give you happiness. Brothers and sisters, far, far from being a killjoy, from being a list of rules, a list of do's and don'ts, a true and better happiness does exist in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It does. It's here where we're reminded that surely he has borne our griefs as Isaiah says, he has carried our sorrows so that we might bear his righteousness and carry his joy. Praise God. Let's pray together. Then we'll respond to the word.